Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So open your copies of God's Word there, Ecclesiastes 8, verses 10 through 17, continuing in our series in this book, although next week I do plan to get out of Ecclesiastes for Easter, uh, and you can read ahead, I'm going to try to cover um, Luke uh, 24 next week, it's a long chapter, but actually I... uh, was preparing to preach in Luke 24 three years ago. Uh, Jonathan reminded me of it. He said, you're going to preach that sermon you had three years ago? I said, I never preached that sermon, did I? Um, And um, remember, I was doing a series on the attributes of God and uh, different things about God. And that Easter, I was going to preach on our surprising God. So I'm going to talk next week, Lord willing, on how God surprises us at Easter uh, from Luke 24. And it's such a long chapter. You may want to uh, read that ahead of time. But anyway, things have come up. Jonathan showed up three years ago and said, I'm going to do this new song on First Peter. And I said, well, I'll just preach on First Peter, and then it will be in sync. So that's how that text got postponed. And then the pandemic came up. And I said, well, I need a pandemic Easter message. So there we go. And so hopefully we'll be surprised next week if, if it happens. You know, Luke 24. This morning, Ecclesiastes 8, another Passage on Wisdom. What a book that is kind of difficult. It'll be good, I think, to have a breather next week. Um, There's heavy wisdom in this book. uh, And this is another one of those passages which distinguishes Christians from non-Christians, those who are wise from those who are not, um, and God's uh, ministry to us here. Let me read it for you. Ecclesiastes 8, beginning at verse 10. Hear God's word. So then I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place. And they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There's futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. So I commended pleasure... For there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover. The work which has been done under the sun, even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. It reminded me of a time I was uh, attempting to fix my lawnmower. Um, my muffler kept falling off, and I realized the problem was I was using the, uh, in putting it back on, using the wrong washers. So I went and purchased a lock washer. That's a washer that gives you tension. If you don't have tension on the nut, 
it's, as the lawnmower vibrates, that nut's just going to vibrate off at some point. So you have to have tension on it. You have to have a lock washer. So I've purchased the lock washer, put it on, or tried to put it on, and dropped it in high grass or high dirt, whatever you want to call my yard. But a lock washer, which is about that small in grass and dirt, I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked. And at some point I said, I'm never going to find this in a million years. And I gave up and went back to the store for another one, right? We all have those occasions where we say, I, I just won't find this in a million years. It's like finding the needle in the haystack. Not going to likely happen. Or finding a contact lens on a sandy beach. You, know, you can sometimes discover these undiscoverables if you've got a lot of help. Otherwise, you might as well give up. And this passage in Ecclesiastes is saying we need help to discover undiscoverables. Let me read again the conclusion. Uh, Solomon does this throughout the book. He, he tells you what he was trying to say in his conclusion to his paragraph. He, does, he did it last week. We saw that in verse 9. This week we see it in verse 17. He says, I saw every work. So I'm, I'm investigating things for you. And I see and I conclude that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. He says, even if you work laboriously day and night to try to discover certain things, you will not discover them. Not going to happen. Go back into this paragraph and you see... He tells us some things we are able to discover if we have God in the picture. But under the sun, the non-Christian, that person will never discover this in a million years. Does it matter if he stays up day and night? Does it matter if he works laboriously? He just won't get it. Or she just won't get it. So inside information here. Pretty cool for the believer. Pretty cool for God's church. That he enables us to discover undiscoverable, unseen things. Now let me show, you to it, show it, it to you in the New Testament real quick before we jump into Ecclesiastes 8. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me for just a minute. 2 Corinthians 3. And there's an illustration here about having a veil, and the veil is hiding life, basically. We can't discover it until the veil is removed. Notice God's word, 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 12. It says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face. So that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because it's removed in Christ. Now don't miss that. He says there's stuff in the Old Testament to that very day. People are missing it. And they're going to continue to miss it until Christ shows up. It says, 
only in Christ is that veil removed and people understand things about the old covenant that was undiscoverable apart from Christ. Uh, verse 15, but, it is, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So now he switched it to the soul, the heart of man. You just don't know these things. This veil is there. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So there's things we get because we've turned to Christ. Christ is our Lord, our Savior. He opens our eyes. He removes the veil so that we can see what was until Him undiscoverable truth. Look at chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are people in this room who don't know Christ yet. Christ is not invaded, has not invaded your life and changed your heart. And when I read stuff like the gospel or the glory of Christ, it's just, you know, it's like, I don't know what he's talking about. And then you read it to a believer, and you see tears streaming down their face, they get it. One has not found the truth of the gospel, one lives it. Completely different. And it, the, change, the difference is Christ. Coming to Christ enables us to see things we could not see before. The Word of God, the Old Testament, it starts becoming illumined so that we understand what we would have missed otherwise. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes 8 and see what the world misses, but God illumines for the believer, some undiscoverers, uh, undiscoverables. Um, three categories, personal corruption, ultimate consequences, and unsuspecting calamity. First of all, just personal corruption. When he begins verse 10 with the word, so then, it's like you should have learned something from verses 1 through 9 that brings you into this first point in verse 10. Well, to remind you last week in verses 1 through 9, it was a passage about how to live when people above you or in authority over you uh, exercise their authority to your hurt. That's the la literally the last phrase of verse 9. When you realize people want to hurt you, well, what does that teach you? How does that help you? Well, one thing it teaches you is that people are corrupt. Why do they want to hurt me? I'm not trying to hurt them. And yet they want to. There must be a, a personal corruption in us. And that's where he goes, verse 10. So then I, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, they're soon forgotten. In other words, there are people in church, there are people who used to go in and out from church, out from holy places, but they live unholy lives. That's corrupt. That, that's not the way it should be, and yet that's the way it is. 
Why don't we recognize that? It seems, though, all you got to do is die and you're a good person. Well, he was such a good person. And yet we know that's not the case. Many times, those who are coming and going from church, as soon as they get away from the preacher, they curse like a sailor. And you know, that's not a holy man. That's an unholy person going to a holy place. But when they die, we just forget about it. We just kind of erase it all and go about our business. He said, what are we missing there? We're missing, we're, we're failing to discover truth in that circumstance. Um, I remember, I mean, I don't know that any of us really escape some of these thoughts, but I, I remember meeting a lady in town, somebody had introduced me to her, and uh, we had a moment to sit down and talk. I said, well, tell me your story. Um, uh, somebody told me you're going through a divorce right now. Tell me, tell me about your, your journey, your marriages, your divorce, you know, what's going on. And she said, well, actually, I've been married a couple times, and uh, we went through this and that, and, you know, I, it wasn't just my husband, it's me. I did some, some bad stuff, and, and I'm actually living with somebody now and um, not really thinking about marriage again. And at some point, it clicked in her head how she was just... Um, telling the bad stuff of her life to a stranger. And so she said, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. She says, I don't want you to think I'm a bad person. And I said, I don't think any of us want to th other people to think we're bad people. But let's face it, we are. We are bad people. You are a, I didn't say this, but this is what I thought. You're a bad mamma jamma. You know, we are, we're messed up, we're corrupt, we sin every day, we go into holy places being unholy in our hearts and our lives. And until you discover this, and I don't know if you're going to discover it in this conversation, but until you see your corruption, you will never see your need for Jesus. Because he redeems us from corruption. He takes away our pollution. Our corruption is our problem. Christ is the solution. He is our need. We need holiness. Why are we not more holy? Because we don't see we're not holy. We miss personal corruption. If people go through life. He says it's just vain. If people go through life that way. He says it's futility. Never learning they are personally corrupt and in need of a holy God. Look at Romans 1. Let me just share a few verses why is this? Why, why does it happen this way? Look at Romans 1, verse 18. Here's the answer why this occurs. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And catch this phrase. Who suppress. Suppress means to push down, push aside, 
get it out of here. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God says, I'm going to reveal my wrath on this corrupt land, corrupt people. These people will realize it then, but now they're suppressing the truth. They want to stay with the corruption instead of hearing the truth that I am a bad person. Uh, Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God. So we, God is there, and He's real, and He's holy. But they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. We worship so many things. We've seen through this pandemic the idol of safety just really get exalted. We worship that idol of safety. We worship an idol of health. We worship our creatureliness instead of worshiping God. We just don't discover that we're here for God's glory. We're not here for our health. We're not here for our safety. We're here for God's glory. But so many people don't discover that because of corruption. Our corruption, because we want to suppress the truth. We, want to, we have to worship something. We're beings designed to worship. So we pick another, create another idol to worship. Verse 28, Romans 1. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Verse 31. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That describes man. Those of us who are believers, we say, yes, that describes me. Lord, help me. And we run to Jesus. So good to be in the light. So good to have the truth. God unveils it to us. The veil is removed so that we can see, so that we can know. Otherwise, it's just buried and forgotten. And man goes about his days in vain. A second discovery we get in Ecclesiastes 8, going back there. Not only do we see personal corruption, but we see ultimate consequences. Verses 11, 12, and 13 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed's not executed quickly. Now, we would all like that, right? That's why he says says it that way. I would love it if, you know, well, I wouldn't love it if God executed justice on my evil deed, right? Not quickly. I'm so thankful God is patient. And he's merciful. But we all know that if justice was executed more quickly, it would be a deterrent to evil. If we got justice quickly. And he's talking about this. He says, the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men among them are given fully. They just keep doing it, saying... And I've had non-believers say, oh, I'm not really worried about God's judgment or justice or whatever, because I, I do evil stuff all the time. God hasn't gotten me yet. I, it's not that I don't believe he could get me. I just don't think he wants to or doesn't care. He's just not doing it. So I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. And we know people like that, and we've been people like that, and he's describing that kind of person. Verse 12, although a sinner does evil a hundred times, he thinks he, he may lengthen his life by doing so. You know, just going to live and see what happens. He says, still, I know it's, it's not going to be well for those 
who don't fear God. Ultimate consequences. That's where he's taking us. Ultimate consequences. In other words, there is coming a day of judgment. There's coming an ultimate consequence to this kind of living. Verse 13. But it will not be well for the evil man, and it will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There are going to be consequences, and God reveals that to us. God is the one who orders our day. He knows our last day before our first day even exists. God knows us, and he knows there are going to be consequences. How many of us just hide the thought of consequences, thinking I can lie, I can cheat, I can push it off? How many of us have reached our hand into the cookie jar, proverbial cookie jar, you took a piece of fudge or chocolate or a cookie and your mom or dad walks in, did you get a cookie? Did you get that fudge? And what do you say? Nope, nope. And as you look up, you know, there's chocolate all around your mouth. And mom and dad knows you did it. But you're thinking you can lie your way out of this. I can steal, I can cheat, I can lie, I'll be okay. And nobody's going to bother me here. The consequences will be pushed down the road. And we start young living that way and we keep living that way. Look at Romans 2 4 through 11. Romans 2 4 through 11 talks about the mercy of God but it also talks about ultimate consequences. In Christ we have this wisdom. Romans 2 beginning at verse 4 Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's where it should lead us. God did not wipe me out today. I should thank him for his mercy because I deserved it. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness, so if you don't run to Christ, you're stubborn. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, this is what you're doing. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immorality, uh, immortality, they get eternal life. Verse 8, but to those who are selfish and vicious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they get wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first, also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. So there it is. Every time we sin, if we are not running to Christ for mercy and forgiveness and pardon, that sin is put in this bucket of wrath which God promises to pour out ultimately at some point. So I'm storing it up. Every man will be rewarded or awarded according to his deeds. So God's not forgetting when we sin. The sin either needs to be paid for by Christ and we go free. We're pardoned by his grace, by him paying for it. Or it's stored up. And God will pour out that wrath upon us ultimately. 
Now you say, well, I've been living pretty, pretty bad. God hadn't got me yet. That's mercy. That's kindness. That's called grace. And we can see it when the veil's removed. It's an undiscoverable for the unbeliever. And yet, until their eyes are open, they don't see how badly they need this truth. That we need to be running to Christ for grace from sin. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14, we get a third undiscoverable, and that's unsuspecting calamity. It says there in verse 14, there's futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. In other words, righteous people get what the wicked deserve. Wicked people get what the righteous should have gotten. And that's futility, he says, if that happens. It's... How do, we, how do we live with a reversal of rewards? And we've seen it happen. We've seen the innocent party in a divorce end up in poverty and in need the rest of their life while the, while the adulterer wins the lottery. Or we've seen... A drunk driver, I read the story of a drunk driver crossing the median, hitting a loving Christian family and killing everyone. And yet the drunk driver walks away without a scratch. But we say, that's wrong. And yet that happens in real life. A reversal of rewards, a calamity that we don't like. It doesn't fit our earthly, under-the-sun morals. Um, life seems at that moment to be without rhyme or reason. Let me give you another truth from Romans. Look at Romans 9, 21 through 23. Perhaps the hardest of these we've looked at. Romans 9. Romans 9, 21. Does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, like I said, it's a difficult passage, and Lord willing, we'll get to unpack it more later. But you, you get the main point. God is the creator. He creates us. He says, what if the reason for the creation was not about us? What if it wasn't for our safety? What if it wasn't for our health? What if it was just for God's glory? And what if God made something very unsafe for us, very unstable, and we even died, but it glorified Him? How could we disagree with that? Since life was designed for His glory, He is the Creator, and we're just the vessel. And 
when it becomes our desire to honor Him, our chief end is to glorify Him. Then even in that calamity, we can praise Him because His glory was our chief end, our chief desire. And even as we burst into the glories of heaven because of earthly calamity, we see all opened up to us that's glorious, and we say, praise God. See, again, the the unbeliever can't get there. They don't see that. That's wisdom given by Christ to his people to help us deal with these calamities that seem to bother society because society is so entrenched in living for many, many things beyond or different from the glory of God. We live for our idols instead of God's glories. God's purpose is His glory. Unseen discoveries. So nice to have these discover, undiscoverables revealed to us. He gives our life balance and joy. And that's where He takes us to not only know these unseen things, but then to perform undeveloped duties. And there's two duties that I think are mentioned here. He wants us to pursue His pleasure, and He wants us to pursue His wisdom. And as believers, we can do that. First of all, His pleasure. He talks about this pleasure that's under the sun, but we can take it um, to a far greater level again than the unbeliever. Verse 15, So I commended pleasure, saying there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, drink, and be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life. Now, don't miss this last phrase. I'm going to show you how important it is. Throughout the days of his life, which God, and here's the phrase you, or verb you need to uh, circle, has given him under the sun. It's interesting when you see this very popular passage in the book of Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, kind of popular phrase. But when you read it in its context, it always comes through to us as a gift, as a grace to us from God. So it should drive us back to the grace giver. God is the one giving us the ability to eat and to drink and to find pleasure in this earth. Let's let's look at it. Look at Ecclesiastes 2. We've seen it before. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24 and 25. Says there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This is also, this also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat? Who can have enjoyment without Him? It's God's gift. This thing's not something you get to just go do. God has to give it to you. Look at chapter three of Ecclesiastes, verse twelve. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. Catch the phrase. It is the gift of God. Again, he shows us this grace. Look over at chapter 5, at verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good and Fitting to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has 
given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. See, never departs from that theme that those of you, all of us, are able to eat, drink, and be merry. And he says, and the reason you're able to eat, drink, and be merry is because God is giving that. He's given us that under the sun. That's, for the unbeliever, that's all the reward you get. For the believer, there's much more. But he says, that is a reward I'm gracing, I'm gifting to humanity. Enjoy it. For some, that's all you're going to get. For others, there's much more. But pursue the pleasure God is giving. God is a gracious person. He's a giving God. He is giving pleasure even to the unbeliever who never stops to acknowledge God and give God glory. Don't be robbed of joy. Be encouraged that every day God wants to give you pleasure and joy. Uh, of course, one of my, my favorite psalms, Psalm 16, the last verse, in his presence is the fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. For those, again, of us in Christ, we don't just get the pleasure of food and drink. We get the pleasure of God's presence. And in his presence, there is a fullness, a fullness of joy. We get to take joy to a whole different level. A fullness of joy is for us. God wants us to pursue it. Again, you see the scriptures over and over emphasizing you must be pursuing Christ to get this gift of God, God's pleasure. Second, God doesn't want us only to pursue pleasure, but he wants to pers- us to pursue wisdom. Verse 16 of Ecclesiastes 8. When I gave my heart to know wisdom. That's what he wants us to pursue. To see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night. It's like, I gave myself to that. And we need to see that. It's, it's undiscoverable, verse 17, for those just under the sun, not those under heaven, under God's grace. Those under grace need to seek God's grace. You, you remember this uh, very popular verse, Matthew 7, I think it is. Seven and eight. I remember um, yesterday for the, those who were at Concord playing basketball, this was the, the verse of the day over there uh, that they were teaching the boys and girls playing basketball. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And those are continual Verbs, In other words, keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. Keep on asking of God. He'll keep on giving. Keep on seeking God. He'll continue to disclose himself to you. Keep on knocking. He wants to open so much up to us. Pursue his pleasure. He wants us to do that. Now, How can we do that when we seem so darkened? Well, go with me to John chapter 1. 
we seem so often in the dark, and I think this is the solution again, just to see the light of Christ. John chapter 1. Let me read the first five verses and a little bit more. John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that, was, that has not come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Well, stop right there a minute and just think about it. Christ is the Word. Everything that's come into being on earth has come into being through Christ. Christ knows about everything because everything's come through Him. You want to get out of the darkness? You want to know more? It would make sense that you would go to the source of all things, and that source is Christ. Christ has come to us. A lot of people suppress that truth and push Him aside. Verse 9, there was true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, that's Christ, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Christ is the one who makes it clear to us. As we pursue wisdom, we must be pursuing it through Christ. What does Christ do? Christ comes and explains our personal corruption. Christ comes and explains ultimate consequences. Christ comes and explains unsuspecting calamity. Christ comes and explains pleasure. Christ comes and enlightens with wisdom. Our need is Christ. That's our wisdom. Christ, 1 Corinthians 1 said, Christ is not only our sanctification, He is our wisdom. Christ pulls back the veil. Maybe there's some of you that feel like you're going through this life looking for missing parts. What's missing? You're looking for that little washer that locks it all together. You won't find it in a million years unless you find Christ. My encouragement to you is to see the need for Easter, the need for Palm Sunday, the need for life is Christ. Without Christ, we're walking through this world blind and there are things we'll never see and never understand. We so much want you to see them and understand them. It begins by saying, Christ, come into me. Change me. Be Lord. Be Master. Be Savior. Take away my sin. Be my, my boss. I want to come under your management so that I live this life wisely. Otherwise, it's futility. Futility. It's all futility. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and your truth that drives us back to you. We need you badly. We ask that you would make blind people see. That you would use us to be vessels that make hard hearts soft. 
that make those who suppress the truth run to Christ to be freed from the bondage of sin and enabled to freely enjoy and know you both now and forever. Father, we love you. We thank you for showing us these things. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.